Father, our fellowship in Christ is deep and good, and we're so thankful for that. And the fellowship we have here is but a small taste of the fellowship that we will have one day when we, are, when we stand in your presence. And all the barriers will be down, and we will know even as we are known. And Father, I, I thank you for the Spirit of God who works within us to create unity, to create love, to take us beyond our, our normal barriers, and to establish within us a desire to minister to one another and to see God accomplish good in each life. Father, we're here this morning that you might accomplish your will in our lives, that your word might become more real and more true to, to us, that we in turn will be obedient to it. We thank you for the Spirit of God who is our teacher, for the life of Christ that energizes us and enables us to accept the word and to absorb it within our very being. Oh, Father, today we ask you to guide our thoughts, guide our words, I ask that throughout our Sunday School this morning you'll be present in each and every class in order to magnify your great and holy name. In the name of Christ, amen. Over the period of several weeks, possibly a couple of months or more, in the spring of a year about 3,400 years ago, Egypt was the battleground in a cosmic confrontation between God, the God of the Old Testament, who is known as Yahweh, to whom we just describe the name God and Lord, and the gods of Egypt. Again, we, we always need to be reminded of the fact that the gods of Egypt were, yes, human inventions, yes, they were stone images, yes, they were drawings on a wall, yes, they were represented by animals, but behind them, Scripture clearly says in Isaiah and in many places in Paul's writings, that behind these gods were real spiritual forces. These are the spiritual forces of the evil world, uh, satanic forces which empower them. Otherwise, uh, they would not have had as much impact then on Egypt, nor would they have as much impact as they do today in many, many cultures of the world. If there was not a reality behind these, these gods, it's an evil reality, but the people who are caught in the midst of the worship often do not understand that. Moses is the servant of Yahweh and he's standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with Pharaoh who is actually a divine representative of the Egyptian pantheon. He himself is a god in, in the view of the Egyptians anyway. And they have faced each other many times now. What we're going to be looking at today is the final confrontation. The final confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, certainly not the final confrontation between God and the forces of evil in this world. Egypt's been in the process of being devastated. Plague after plague has struck the land of Egypt. And as we have looked at that, we've seen that there's been a crescendo in terms of the impact of these plagues upon Egypt. We're now arriving at the final two plagues, one of which is, is psychologically absolutely devastating, and the other, of course, is destructive of human life. So it's been getting worse, but the very worse is yet to come. If you'll turn to the 10th chapter of Exodus, I'd like to begin reading with verse 21 of Exodus chapter 10. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore our livestock too will go with us. Not a hoof will be left behind. For we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Beware. Do not let me see, do not see my face again. For in the day that you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, You're right. I shall never see your face again. We have seen the account before where God has ordered Moses to stretch his hand with his staff in his hand to the heavens. And, and God has, has brought a plague upon the land of Egypt. The last one before this was the great plague of locusts, which came like a dark cloud uh, out of the Arabian Peninsula and swept in over Egypt from the east and devastated the land. And now again, God is ordering him to hold his hand high to the sky, certainly with his staff in it. This act is symbolic. I, I think it's really important that we understand that, and I'm, I'm sure we do. Many times people who read this who, who do not have faith and never have had any teaching in this, uh, see that in, in this there's some kind of manipulation here, that Moses is doing something to manipulate God to respond. But we're looking at a symbolic act representing the authority that God has placed in Moses, that God would respond to Moses' action. But it was God's command in the first place. It was an act of obedience on the part of Moses not an act of manipulation. There's no ritual, no formula here uh, involved at all. It's simply a symbol of the divine presence in Moses. I think it's really important that all of us recognize that God's presence is with us too. As true believers, God indwells us, God empowers us, and God works through us. Um, we may not have been used of God to, to bring some great plague, I hope not, I hope we're here to bring the, the blessing of God and salvation through the name of Christ. But God indwells us just as he indwelled Moses at this moment in time. It's interesting to note that God does not say to Moses, all right, go back in before Pharaoh and warn him again. God says nothing about going before, Moses, uh, before Pharaoh at this time. He simply follows one plague with the other. The locusts are blown away and drowned, we're told, in the Red Sea. And now there follows immediately on the heels of that plague, the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. Without any further ado, God brings this ninth plague across the land. In the 22nd verse, we read that it says that the darkness was thick. I, I think all of us at some time have experienced what to us at least seemed like thick darkness. I can remember traveling down a mountainside one time when we got, we started heading back too late. 
and uh, we weren't planning on being out late, so we had no flashlights. And we were coming down a mountainside in a strange, on a strange mountain in a strange country and had no lights and the tent was a long ways away. <laughs> and it was a strange thing coming down that mountain, falling into canyons or little ravines and crashing into trees. Couldn't see anything, no moon. No, it was a very dark night. Fortunately, a couple who were with this, a couple of, of the young people who were with us in this group, this was down in South America, um, had gotten back to the tent early and they knew enough to light, turn on the lantern so the tent was lit up. So eventually we could see that spot in the distance and we knew where to head anyway. But it was um, kind of a different experience, not one I really care to repeat too often. But, you know, the darkness seemed thick. It was like you could almost touch it, you know, it was out there. You just couldn't make your way through it very well. And I think the meaning is very literal in this passage here. It's a, it's a thick, impenetrable darkness. Uh, it became so dark that, you know, we've all said, oh, so dark, couldn't see the hand in front of my face. Well, this was literally true. Uh, there was no way they could see anything because this darkness was so deep and so thick. The Hebrew word here actually can be in tr translated, in addition to darkness, as calamitous curse. A calamitous curse sweeping across the land. The concept fits well here because I think what we have here is a picture of a condition that it kind of physically displayed a spiritual truth about the land of Egypt. We read in the passage that the darkness was so thick it could be felt. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? A darkness that's so thick you can actually feel it. Well, obviously that doesn't mean you can sense it with your five senses necessarily, but the feeling comes through the oppression that sweeps in as, as we, you, know, you begin to be panicky because you can't see a thing. I think what they were given is a foretaste of the great darkness that faces all persons who leave this life without Jesus Christ, the great eternal darkness. You know, often we have these pictures and you see the cartoons that shows the devil talking to some other devil about something in life and flames are all around, nice and light and bright, you know, fire, <coughs> fire's burning. I'd like to turn to the book of Jude for a moment, if we may. Jude, which immediately precedes Revelation, tells us a little bit about this eternal darkness. I'd like to read the fourth verse and then skip down to the tenth verse. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were before, long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Then down into verse 10. This, of course, gives you an understanding of who these people are. Then down in verse 10. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And both the error of Balaam and the rebellion of Korah will be part of our study as we move along through the life of Moses here. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. In the first century church, they practiced what was known as the agape. 
The agape was a love feast which occurred after every service on Sunday and following that would be communion. Communion was practiced every Sunday in the early church and there was a kind of a uh, church potluck which occurred before that every Sunday. And theoretically the idea of it was that the people who, who had revealed the love of Christ by sharing with those who had not. And Paul reviles them in 1 Corinthians for some who have hoarding their food and not sharing those who, who, who have not, and then dr getting drunk on the very wine that would then be used for the communion. And so, you know, that could even be abused. But that's, that's what he's talking about here. Jude is referring to this, this same thing. These men are like uh, those who are, who are like hidden reefs in your agapes, uh, when they feast with you without fearing, fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars. The, the Greek here is planetos, from which we get the word planet. Uh, these, these planets, you know, they didn't follow the normal course of the stars, and so they became known as wandering stars uh, to the ancient people for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. The eternal black darkness has been reserved forever. An inky eternal blackness to which their souls will be cast. It's kind of a frightening thing. And these Egyptians got a 72-hour experience at what it would be like forever. Now, as Christians, we have no fear of this eternal darkness, of course. In 1 John 1, 5, we read that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. No darkness in God whatsoever. And one of the glorious things that we read about in the book of Revelation, when you turn to the 21st chapter, we won't do that, but in the 21st chapter of Revelation, we read that of the heavenly Jerusalem, it says that the city has no need of the sun or the moon at all because the glory of God will illumine it and the lamb, and the lamp is the lamb. Light, light, light. Light is an expression of God. Our God is a consuming fire, we are told. And all through the scripture, we get the concept of light. God is light. And Satan is the expression of darkness, utter darkness. The unbeliever dwells in a spiritual darkness now, which is as dark as that eternal darkness is, but they don't know it. They don't know it because they have the physical light in their lives, but they, they don't recognize the eternal darkness that's already in their souls. A hopeless darkness which dwells within them. Such persons cannot even begin to perceive the light of God. 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter 4 gives us an understanding of why it is many people who hear the gospel just simply do not receive it. The light does not penetrate. Verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The very essence of God is the meaning of the Greek there. Their, their eyes are blinded 
by the God of this world, Satan, and all of his cohorts. So they cannot see the light. And these Egyptians now are experiencing a physical phenomenon that is representative of the spiritual truth to which they were all headed, unless they were to turn to the God of Israel. I think it's important for us to note that this is a totally unnatural phenomenon. You know, I really get tired, and I'm sure some of you probably do too, of reading from some of the scholars who have to explain all these Old Testament things in some kind of physical, normal terms, you know. Well, there was a big sandstorm, you see, and this sandstorm blew it. I mean, sandstorms are not uncommon over there. We flew through Egypt one time when it was suffering from a sandstorm, and it, I mean, you couldn't see very much at all. But I've never seen a picture or been in a sandstorm where it was black like this. You could always see something. You might have sand in your eyes, but you know, the, you, you can see. It, it's not a literal pitch darkness. Or they say, well, you know, it was an extended sun eclipse. Huh. I mean, even when the sun is eclipsed, you have the corona around there and it gives light and you can see. And whoever heard of a three-day sun eclipse anyway? All these natural ex explanations to me are, are ludicrous. It, it's a simply a, a, a unwillingness to accept that our sovereign God will actually reach down and manifest himself miraculously in the midst of human beings. There are many who don't want that because then they have to explain why they don't believe. And they don't want to do that. This darkness was a supernatural phenomenon. God simply turned out the lights. How did he do it? Did he just simply order that the normal process by which light waves are propagated cease within the land of Egypt for a period of three days? I don't know. God could easily do that. I mean, he can transform the atoms if he wants to, to something differently. He made them all in the first place. Or simply did he blind the eyes of the people? We don't know. Scripture doesn't say specifically. But, but the verse in this passage, 23, of Exodus 10, and you look back at verse 23, it gives us a little idea of how great was this darkness. It says, They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the sons of Israel had light in their dwelling. And that is a very interesting verse. Because most of us would say, okay, so the kind of like the sun went out and the stars went out and the moon went out over Egypt for a period of three days. So the people all stayed indoors and sat around their tables and, and played games, you know, <laughs> while their lamps burned. The implication seems to be here that not even their lamps would burn. That there was no light at all within the houses of the Egyptians because the, the parallel here is but the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings that their candles burned, their little oil lamps burned, but they didn't in the Egyptian house, seems to be the implication here. I think it's possible that the sun shone in Goshen, while it didn't in the rest of the land of Egypt. We have to realize, or accept, I believe, that this is a miraculous thing. That, that God has done it, and he's not used any normal process by which he has done this. In great distress, Pharaoh finally calls on Moses. I mean, not even in the palace was there light. And we could start saying, well, how does, it, how, how does Moses get there, you know? <laughs> click, 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 click along the street, you know? Or, or what does he do? 
How does he get there? Well, you know, in God's people there is an inner light. In fact, in, in American history there has been the doctrine of the inner light. Well, it actually goes back to European history. But I think in this situation God guided Moses so that he was able to come into the presence. And of course it could be that Moses came after the 72 hours were over or, you know, when the first rays of light began to shine and Pharaoh asked Moses to come in. He relents a little further. Remember before he said, okay, you may go, but only the men. Now he's saying, okay, you can all go, but leave all your animals here. Pharaoh's afraid they won't come back. I wonder why. <laughs> you know, it's quite obvious they're not planning to come back. Why would they uproot lock, stock, and barrel? I mean, if I was going somewhere out in the desert for a few days, I don't think I'd take my whole household and everything I own and drag it all out there into the desert, you know? I mean, I can't because mine's nailed down to a foundation, but, you know, whatever they had to move, a tent or whatever, uh, they could move it. But, uh, you know, Pharaoh is, is not totally stupid. Uh, spiritually, he's absolutely uh, ignorant, but uh, at least physically he has some understanding here. What to me is really amazing here is Moses. Moses responds to Pharaoh in, a, I think, a very, very cool and calm way. I think he looks Pharaoh right in the eye uh, when he responds to Pharaoh. And, and he says, not only are all the people going, but every single animal. He says every hoof <laughs> is going with us into the desert. Because we don't know what sacrifice God is going to demand of us, so we can't leave our animals behind. We will take them all. But Moses again sees Pharaoh's heart turn like a stone. Not that it ever was anything else. God simply reconfirms him again in the hardness of his heart. And I've, I've emphasized this as we've gone along from plague to plague. We've seen how it says, Mos uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then it suddenly switches to God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And, and what we've got is, again, uh, simply Pharaoh passing the point of no return. He's hardened his heart to the point where God said, so be it. We read from the first chapter of Romans last week, which supports this idea that God will eventually can, uh, simply turn people over to what they've committed themselves to do, and it's, they've passed the point of no return, and that's the way it's going to be, and God confirms it, and so he has done here in the case of Pharaoh. Pharaoh will not yield to Moses' demand. Again, it's not just the, the man Pharaoh and the man Moses, but we're talking about a great spiritual confrontation here between God of the universe and the God of this world, toe-to-toe, -to -toe, so to speak, through these two human beings. Pharaoh will not yield. He's the son of the sun god. He's the son of Horus, the great god of light, strange as it might seem, whose all-seeing eye looks over the land of Egypt. Here is this son of the sun god, and how in the world is he going to yield? to a god of a Hebrew slave shepherd. Can't bring himself to do it. He's so angry over the frustration, through the frustration, since Moses will not yield even one little point. <laughs> Moses will not say, okay, Pharaoh, I'll meet you halfway. We'll take all the sheep but leave the goats, you know, or something, you know. We'll take everybody over 
five years old and leave the young ones here with a few babysitters, you know. No. He won't yield one iota. Everybody goes, all the animals go. And Pharaoh just is driven up the wall by, by this. So, in his anger, he banishes Moses and Aaron from his presence. He says, don't ever show your face in this place before me again, because if you do, I will execute you. Now, in his heart of hearts, <laughs> Pharaoh had to know that was an empty threat, because here he was, the absolute master of all Egypt. Why hadn't he executed Moses and Aaron long before now? Why, why are these people constantly coming and pestering him and, and bringing these great tragedies? He could have stretched them out and cut their heads off a long time ago. So he knows he can't do it because his hand has been withheld and he's powerless. But he had to say this in order to console his badly bruised ego. To what extent will a person go to defend his pride? God gives to Moses great discernment here. Not only to know that, sure, Pharaoh's just doing the same old act again, but God gives to Moses discernment that, yes, this is the last time you will ever stand before Pharaoh and ever talk to him eyeball to eyeball. You will never see him again. And so the words of Moses are pronounced there in verse 29 where he says, You are right. I shall never see your face again. This is confirmed in his heart. And I think he spoke it with very ominous tone in his voice. You're right, Pharaoh. You will never see my face again. I think that uh, those words haunted Pharaoh through the rest of his life. I think they kind of echoed through the halls of the palace. I think Pharaoh's advisors kind of shivered as they heard those words. Chapter 11, Exodus chapter 11. Yes, ma'am. I'm curious as to why scripture even in our up-to-date translations, still use the phrase God-hearted, Pharaoh's heart. It's very confusing. Well, that's because that's what it says in the Hebrew. The point I've been trying to make through these last, oh, I don't know, a few Sundays, but, but it is a, it's a very, very significant point. And, and many people have great problems with, with this particular passage. And, and so I've been trying to emphasize the flow here. Because as you look at the early statements in the early plagues, it specifically says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart against Moses and against Israel. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then all of a sudden, it begins to say, and so God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the point I've been trying to make is that Pharaoh himself had turned his back on the truth. He had rejected the obvious truth. He had rejected the manifestation of God's power and his glory in his midst. And therefore, he had crossed that point of no return, where God simply did harden his heart in the sense that God said, okay, that's the way it is, that's the way it is, and I am confirming you in that hardness. And let me just turn to it again. Maybe it got missed as we went through it quickly last week, but I think it was last week. Yeah, Romans chapter 1 kind of supports all of this 
in, as you read down from about verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. So there's a light already there, uh, a natural light. Uh, Ecclesiastes talks about the uh, eternity being set in the hearts of all people. All people everywhere have a sense of, of life beyond this life. They have a sense of the divine. It's natural within the human being. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew about God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to, become, to be wise, they became fools. Then in verse 24 it says, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored. Uh, then in verse 26 it says, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. And in verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. In other words, God, in effect, washed his hands of them and said, Okay, that's the way it is. You've committed your way. You've set, you're charted your course. You're fixed in it. That's your eternal destiny. And back in the sixth chapter of Genesis, in verse 4, we read that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them, those who were mighty men who were men of old, men of renown. In the verse just before that, it says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. This point at which God will cease his striving and will confirm us to whatever we've committed ourselves to do. So I think that's the picture we have here in, in the case of Pharaoh. God simply gave him over to all that he had committed himself to do and confirmed it. Yes. And so then it becomes God's hardening of the heart in the confirmation. Mr. Johnson. In uh, Exodus 10 verses 1 and 2, does he kind of outline that as a plan? Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them. Right, this, this constant reaffirmation of this, because God has the plan of, throughout all of the ages, demonstrate his power and his glory through what he does in Egypt for Israel and against the Egyptians. Right. There has been, throughout the history of the church, a long ongoing struggle having to do with the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And uh, we are not going to probably resolve that ultimately for the sake of the church. But you know, you and I can resolve it ultimately for our own hearts in trying to understand how God can be ultimately sovereign and yet we can have our free will. And somehow the two work together to one common good uh, within God's kingdom and within the framework of uh, the teaching of scripture. And we don't have to become an extreme Calvinist or an extreme Wesleyan to, to, be, to have a satisfactory understanding of what the scripture is saying. I don't know if that helps, okay. but anyway. I'd like to read the 11th chapter here of Exodus, if I may. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Now, speak now in the hearing of the people, that each man ask 
from his neighbor, and each woman from her neighbor, for articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog shall not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Chronologically, chapter 11 is simply a continuation and needs to be seen within the same scenario that we saw in chapter 10. The first verse of chapter 11 needs to be seen in the sense, maybe as we read the first line, now the Lord said to Moses, we could read, now the Lord had said to Moses. In other words, Moses and God have already had this encounter before it's expressed to Pharaoh here on that particular day. God has already revealed these details to Moses, and he made it clear that this last plague would force Pharaoh to finally allow Israel to leave Egypt. And we're going to see in a moment that verses 4 to 8 of this particular passage should be attached right up to the end of verse 29 of chapter 10. It's just a continued, continuing picture there uh, chronologically. In preparation for their exit from Egypt, the Israelites were told by Moses to go out and request of all of their Egyptian neighbors articles of gold, articles of silver, and other passages tell us, and clothing. Now, clothing wasn't so difficult to request in those days. You know, most of us wouldn't go to our neighbor and ask for some clothes. <laughs> First of all, probably wouldn't fit. Uh, in those days, you know, it was kind of one-size-fits-all type clothing that most of them wore, tunics and over, you know, robes and things that didn't, oh, a real tall person obviously had to have a little bit longer robe than a short person, but, you know, basically the, the clothing was something that could <coughs> fit almost anybody. But God had revealed uh, this part of his plan way back at the burning bush, and this, was, this is kind of amazing. Let me go back to chapter 3 just for a minute of Exodus and read it, verses 21-22. I mean, here, here Moses is. I mean, he's not been to Egypt yet. Um, God's just trying to get him to do the job that uh, God's called him to do. And God says in verse 21, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, and, and the woman who lives in her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, 
and you will put them on your sons and on your daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. So God had already made that quite clear way back at the burning bush. So this is nothing new when God says to Moses, okay, now tell the people to do this. The, the moment had arrived. Before this, they probably wouldn't have gotten too far with this, but the Egyptians have been through it all. You know, They have been through the literal ringer here. And they are prepared. Whatever Israel wants, Israel gets, because they are scared to death. The scripture doesn't say what excuse the Israelis were to use. Were, what, why would they say, well, give me some gold and give me some silver and give me some clothing, please? Why did they say that? I mean, did they have to explain it? There's no evidence that they explained anything, but simply that they made the request. And the scripture passage tells us that God miraculously gave them favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. Well, part of giving them favor was beating the Egyptians to death now through nine plagues. They have been prepared uh, to, to be receptive to whatever God brings along the line. And I think part of that favor comes through the great esteem that the Egyptians had for this man Moses. I mean, Moses was almost divine in the eyes of the, of the Egyptians. In fact, if you know, they would have made him divine. They would have said, this is obviously uh, the representative of all the divinities combined or something here. He, he, is, he is a great man because all he had to do was hold his staff to the heavens and it goes pitch black. 24 hours later, a giant plague of grasshoppers sweeps over the whole land, you know, turns the whole water system into blood by touching his staff to the water. What kind of a man is this? They had never witnessed anything like it before. And his prophecies were 100% accurate, which, of course, the Scripture clearly teaches us is the measure by which you measure all prophets. If a prophet is of God, their, uh, their prophecies are 100% accurate, not 99.9. .9. And certainly not like many of the modern prophets uh, of our day who get a 30% or a 40% rating at best, you know, the Gene Dixons and the Edgar Casey's and the others who you know, Nostradamus fans, you know. 100% accuracy is the requirement of a true prophet of God. Anybody else is not a prophet of God in, in their prophecies if it falls less than that. Not that we have any record of. They're still working. On, she asked, Mary asked if any of these plagues are recorded anywhere in, in Egyptian writing. And it's, it's kind of interesting that even events as late as maybe a thousand years later or a little less than a thousand years later, uh, such as the destruction of the army of Sennacherib, when Sennacherib lost 185,000 men to the, to the angel of the Lord outside the walls of Jerusalem. There's no record of that in the, in the Assyrian archives. And the reason was, uh, most of the ancient peoples never recorded reverses. They never recorded tragedies. They only re recorded their victories. They only recorded the bountiful things. They almost never recorded the reverses that they experienced. Uh, it was just their tradition. They're all, almost always trying to glorify their God, their nation, and their king, and so they only write good things. The Egyptians in this situation are terrified partly because the magicians of Egypt can't hold a candle to Moses. So if the Israelis want something, they get it without an argument. If we take the verses 4 through 8 now, of chapter 11. 
and move them up to append them to the end of verse 29. And the reason I do that is because Pharaoh says, go out from my presence, I don't want to ever see you again. And Moses says, so be it, that's the way it's going to be. And yet down here in this chapter, we have Moses talking to Pharaoh and turning around and walking out from Pharaoh's presence. So obviously this all takes place at the same time. Chapter 11 and chapter 10 occur simultaneously, chronologically. It's interesting that Moses does not give Pharaoh a warning here. When he says to Moses, about midnight I'm going out in the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn are going to die, he's not giving him a warning because he is not giving him any options. He's not saying, unless you let us go. There are no options given. It is simply a pronouncement of judgment. This is what's going to happen. It is inevitable. It's coming inexorably, and there's not a thing you can do about it. It will sweep over the land of Egypt regardless of what you do, Pharaoh. Firstborn in every household in Egypt will die. Firstborn male in every household in Egypt will die. And the firstborn of all the cattle of Egypt will die. We live in a society that is, is torn by the violence that we have within us, and, and yet at the same time, this, this, this sense that we, we shouldn't execute criminals because somehow we're doing violence to life. No. We go to extreme measures to preserve somebody who's, you know, one foot in the grave and the other in the banana peel, so to speak, and yet we slaughter innocents who have not yet even been born. I mean, we, we are we're just so mixed up as a nation, it's incredible uh, here. And, and yet some people will look at this and they say, what kind of a God is this? Who kills all these kids through the land? Of course, they're not always kids. The firstborn could be 50 years old. Almost as old as I am, you know. And this would, would happen. And innocent animals? Well, when we start looking at the whole story that, that develops in, ex, in Leviticus, where God orders the death of animals as sacrifice to him. In fact, as we're going to look in the 12th chapter, the Passover lamb. You take a, a young, tender lamb or kid, goat, and you befriend it in the family, and then you kill it. Why? I think it's because we, we don't really understand true love. We, we have this strange concept of love in our society, kind of a warm, fuzzy thing. It has nothing to do with the depth of commitment and understanding that God is dealing with here. And, and God wants his people to know how horrible sin is. It is so horrible that these terrible things have to happen. And I, I suppose we could say that all of these Egyptians who die are people who would never submit to God at any point in their lives and therefore eternity now or eternity later what is the difference really? The fear is in between. The scripture tells us our but as a moment of time as an afternoon so to speak. Moses' final words here to Pharaoh are also as far as we know God's final words to Pharaoh. Judgment is coming. And in stark contrast, in stark contrast, will be God's absolute protection over Israel. Such a protection that will not even allow a bar, a dog, to bark at somebody in a hostile manner. Now that's protection. <laughs>
No. I've had lots of dogs bark at me, and so far it hasn't harmed me to any great extent. But the extent of God's protection is that not even a dog will bark hostily against any Israeli. And yet throughout the land of Egypt, the firstborn would die. God is demonstrating beyond a shadow of a doubt to Egyptian and Israeli alike that he is almighty God, that he can do whatever he chooses to do in this universe and no one can say him nay. And yet at the same time, he has an absolute, incredible, hard to grasp commitment to Israel. Because the nation of Israel acted as stupidly and irreverently uh, many times as we do. And, and yet God loved them. God committed himself to them. God so loved the world that he would give his only son. I think today I'd like to, I guess we have to quit, but let me quit with Psalm 145. A couple of verses there. Psalm 145, 18 and 19. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. I, I think that verse 18 is a really important verse for us to always remember. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. But there's a qualifier here. To all who call upon him in truth. That doesn't mean we're just truly calling upon him but we're call upon him, calling upon him on the basis of this truth right here. The truth of this word. Because there are many people in the world who call upon God, but they call upon him out of false beliefs and false understandings and twisting of the truth. And God does not hear those prayers. Well, next week we want to look at Moses' reaction here. It says in the verse, he turns and he walks out in hot anger. It's Moses' turn now. And we'll see the great tragedy. And we'll be looking at the institution of the Passover next week, which is a very, very critical, not only Old Testament, but New Testament truth.